0: We continue this morning our study in the Gospel of John. We've come to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Contextually, coming out of John chapter 3, we have seen uh, the, the centerpiece of John chapter 3, one would, would could probably make the case, is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus and the things that follow from that, the, the baptismal ministry of Jesus' followers, the rising tension between the followers of John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus. But we, we come now to a, a geographical shift. Jesus, aware of the growing tension between his followers and the followers of John the Baptist, though that tension was unjustified, it was nonetheless real. In addition, there's, there's some, as Jesus' visibility increases, there's increasing resentment from the, the Jerusalem leadership of the Jews. That tension is going to eventually lead to the the open conflict that's going to be used of God to position Jesus on the cross. But it's not time for that yet. So Jesus here at John four shifts geographically back into the northern part of the nation of Israel, back up into the region of Galilee where he had spent his growing up years. Um, And in the course of that move, You and I, as we did in chapter three with the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, we become privileged to encounter what would otherwise be a private conversation here between Jesus and a woman at the well. And in that conversation, we're going to see characteristics that I believe are are important, desirable characteristics we should be developing as we share our faith. And speaking of sharing our faith, there's there's, there's something we need to make certain we understand about our, our role in our world today. In Acts chapter one, as Jesus was preparing to ascend, among the last things that he said on earth was, to bring his then small group of followers up to speed that they, they were his witnesses. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and then to the, to the ends of the earth. It's important that you understand that in Acts chapter one, when Jesus said you will be my witnesses, he was not giving a command. The verb there is not an imperative verb. It is a statement of fact you will be my witnesses you're the witnesses I have you are what I am leaving behind to bear witness it's not a matter of whether or not if you are a follower of Jesus Christ it is not a question of whether or not you will be a witness the question is whether or not you will be an effective witness if I saw a traffic accident that you were involved in and it was clearly not your fault, and you're, you're banged up pretty bad in this traffic accident, it's not your fault, and you see that I saw it, maybe it happened right in front of me, and the day comes and uh, it's, the case goes to court and you're, you're trying to get some appropriate damages for the harm that was done you, and I, I get sworn in as a witness and I say, I don't know what I saw. I don't know. Or I don't care enough to show up. Or I don't care enough to have thought clearly. Or I don't care enough to relay what I am supposed to understand. I am a witness, but I can be a horribly ineffective one. You are a witness. You can't be a non-witness, but you can be an apathetic witness, an absent witness, an incoherent witness. A confusing witness? You're a witness. Your your challenge is, shall I be an effective witness? Second Corinthians five also assigns to you the role of an ambassador. That is, you live in a place that is not your ultimate home and you convey in that setting truth from your ultimate home. You respond to your king to deliver his message to the place where he has you stationed. That's at its most fundamental what an ambassador does. And you've not been asked to be one, you've been told you are one. And the issue is, shall you do it well or not? This conversation Jesus has with this woman gives us some some, uh, perspective and some pointers on some things that are important as we share the gospel. So Roman numeral one, I'm gonna read the passage as I go. Roman numeral one, if I'm gonna share the gospel effectively, I must commit. I must commit. I've got to realize this assignment does not belong to everybody else. This assignment belongs to me. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's probably six hours from sunrise, about noon. So the hot part of the day. All right, what do we see in that that little moment? Well, the first thing I want you to see, letter A on your outline, is we must commit in the ordinary, in the ordinary moments of life. As we look at this moment, It's a pretty plain moment. It's a pretty everyday moment. A a weary traveler, a thirsty guy, remember Jesus was as much human as he was God and so he's, he's on a long journey by foot and it's the hot part of the day so he stops to get a water break. That's as ordinary as it gets. And I believe we have this example set in this very ordinary-looking moment to remind you and I that most of our moments on most of our days are pretty ordinary. I mean, we run to the post office. And there there are people. Run to the store, and there are people. And we work with people. We go to school with people. We have neighbors, friends, family members, alongside of whom we are just progressing through ordinary moments all the time. And we ought to see our ordinary moments as moments given us by the one who's made us a witness. The one who has assigned us as an ambassador. If, if we're not effective ambassadors in ordinary moments, we're missing the opportunity to be effective ambassadors in most of the moments we are given. So in the ordinary. But also at the same time, I'm going to have it both ways for a moment, also in the extraordinary there's, there's a lot of extraordinary in this moment as well. We're about to see when this woman comes out to the well that she is surprised that Jesus will even speak to her publicly. That's because in this era, in this age, men do not initiate conversations in public with women they don't know. You can, you can get tagged as creepy in 2021 for doing that if you do it incautiously. And in the first century AD, it wasn't done. So he's he's crossing a gender barrier. That's a little extraordinary. Plus, she is Samaritan. There was a deep racist divide between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. It's got historical roots, but by the time we get to the first century, it's there and it's ugly. And there was an ugly racism between those two people groups. And so Jesus, by the way, whose whose disciples have gone into town to buy food, so they're getting over their racism. Jesus is gonna come across that, that gender divide, that race divide, just a geographical divide. The antipathy toward the Samaritans was so great that, that Jews traveled back and forth between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south all the time. And if you did that by the most direct route, you went through Samaria. But they didn't go by the most direct route. Overwhelmingly, most of the Jewish traffic went either, they would hook out east cross the Jordan River, go up the east side of the Jordan and hook back over near the Sea of Galilee so they could avoid Samaria. Ew. Or they would hook west and go up the Mediterranean coastline and hook back inland once they were past Samaria, I mean please, and come back into Galilee anything but to go through Samaria. Which, which leads to letter C. For Jesus, this conversation that he's setting up is a necessity. Look again in verse four. He had to pass through Samaria. Well honestly, no he didn't. Not naturally speaking. Most Jews wouldn't pass through Samaria. Those other routes were well established. But Jesus had a divine appointment. When we speak of a divine appointment, what we're talking about is a moment where it becomes very, very clear that Jesus has positioned one of his witnesses, one of his ambassadors, one of us, in a setting where we're alongside somebody who needs to hear the gospel. And a moment is there for that witness, that ambassador, to speak the message of eternal life given us by Jesus to that person who needs to hear it. We call those divine appointments. The difference between us and Jesus is Jesus can set his own divine appointments. We don't have that privilege, but Jesus did. Jesus had to go to Samaria because he knew that by the well in Sychar at noon on this day, this woman would come out and it was appointed him to share with her the message of eternal life. It was necessity that he share. Do you understand that it's necessity that you share as well? You cannot describe your life as the life of a faithful, a faithful follower of Christ if you are not faithfully fulfilling your role as witness, as ambassador. It's necessity. Roman numeral two, I must connect. Jesus doesn't know this this woman. This woman doesn't know Jesus. And so it's time for him to have a conversation that connects, verses seven through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now this is about noon. All the decent people, of the village came early in the morning when it was cooler or will come later in the evening when it's cooler. At noon, she comes because she can come alone. Her life is not a life that holds its head up much in the community. We'll see that in a moment. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? What self-control Jesus had not to smile and nod at that moment. Since you asked. Um, by the way, I added that. I, just, I find those moments remarkable. He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now there's a great big sideways multi-minute footnote regarding this word picture and this metaphor, this idea of living water. And oh, how I want to pursue it. But I am held to the discipline of available time. Therefore, let me plug for a moment once again, if you're not subscribing to our Beyond the Notes podcast, I can't wait to talk with you on that podcast this week about this picture from the prophet Jeremiah of Jesus as living water. For here, we'll just say he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about salvation, though she doesn't connect the dots just yet but he builds a connection with her and he does three things that I think are are instructive, three things that we can learn from. Letter A, he makes a request. Now that's fascinating. I'm glad that, that the people of the McGregor Baptist Church, corporately and for many of you individually, we are a generous and need meeting people. We have, we have ministries that meet practical needs, our benevolent ministry, our food pantry, our clothes closet, various of our mission projects are involved in meeting practical needs, and it is, a good, it is a good means to open the door to communicate the gospel when we meet the needs of others. Here, Jesus shows us another possibility, and it's actually quite powerful, for making connections with somebody very quickly. Rather than meet their need, Invite them to meet yours. Show the, the, the humility and the transparency and the vulnerability of saying, hey, can, 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 you, can you help me with this? Here's an experiment, folks. Next time your car is dead on your driveway and you can't crank it, if you've got a neighbor you've never met, go tap on that neighbor's door and say, man, have you got some jumper cables in a few minutes, can you come come help me? I promise you, if he's able to do it, and he does that, from that moment on, that neighbor will probably greet you by name. Because of the connection made when you ask somebody else to help you with something you needed help with. There's something, again, humble and vulnerable about saying, I've got a need, can you give me a hand for a moment? It's fascinating. You know that that's what Jesus is doing and he's doing it intentionally. Let me give you a little bit of a pop quiz. As Jesus sits beside that well, truly thirsty because he was fully human, as Jesus sits beside that well, is her help his only option to come up with some water? No, are you kidding? He's got the options of omnipotence and the creativity of omniscience. Let's have a quick thunderstorm. I don't know, let's just hold up an empty bowl and say, let there be water. He's done stuff like that before. He's got every, this is not about him needing help. This is about him demonstrating accessibility. So one method, make a request. Hey neighbor, can you, can you give me a hand with this? That might lead to an open door of conversation. Second, not only did he request, he also respected. He has the conversation with her and the conversation includes him not merely talking, but also listening. Listening. He demonstrates to her that he respects her, that he values her. She probably hasn't received a lot of that in a while and certainly didn't expect to receive it from a Jewish stranger. She, she makes statements like, hey, you ever heard of Jacob? <laughs> not realizing she's talking to the very living God. But he doesn't give her back patronizing. He doesn't give her back condescension. He knows everything she's gonna say before she says it. If Gail has it right, and I'm sure she does, one of of the the characteristics of mine that annoys her most, and there aren't many, One of the characteristics of mine that annoys Gail most is when I finish her sentences, finish her questions, when I know exactly where she's headed and I go ahead and fast forward her to that point. And by the way, I'm sometimes wrong, but I generally, I know her really, really well, and so I'm sometimes right. But it's, it's annoying and disrespectful to not let someone finish when you think you know where they're headed. I remind you, in this conversation, Jesus knew exactly where this woman was headed. Jesus knew everything. And he let her talk, and he let her ask her question, make her statement. Lost people need the gospel, but what they don't need from us is condescension and patronizing and smugness. He was respectful, he requested. He respected. But third, and this is important, he remembered. He remembered, that is, he remembered that this conversation needed to go somewhere. He remembered, because he he refers to he, uh, the, the, the living water. He keeps bringing the gospel into the conversation. The, go, the, the conversation, Jesus did not wake up this morning or the morning of this chapter to, to form the Samaritan Friendship Committee. She needs to hear about Jesus. And so he remembered the intentionality of keeping it about communicating the gospel. Some, some decades ago, I began to, to hear the term and, and hear the advocacy for something called, by, often called, relationship evangelism relationship evangelism seems to have as one of its central truths that before you can share the gospel with somebody, you have to build a deep and authentic, resolved, close friendship that I've got to build a real deep relationship with somebody before I can share the gospel. And I've heard that said. (laughs) Okay, hang hang on to that thought for a second. Who are the hardest people in the world to witness to? Family and very close friends. So let's think that through for a minute. Before I can tell you about Jesus, I have to make it as difficult as possible by building a close and connected friendship. Evangelist Ray Comfort says it like this, make it easy for yourself, witness to strangers. It's easier. But you do have to build some rapport. And notice how quickly, this conversation if you clocked it, assuming the transcript we have is accurate, they've been talking maybe three or four minutes. And already, because he led with a polite request and because he's demonstrating, by the way, there's nothing wrong with building great relationships. Just don't, don't let somebody die and go to hell halfway through your friendship building because you forgot the point. Jesus didn't forget the point, all right? So he committed, he connected. But then Roman numeral three, you've got to get to it. You've got to confront. And there's no other real real word for it. I've got to be willing to confront lost people with the reality of their lostness. Three things Jesus confronts here. First, he confronts her sin, verses 16 through 18, letter A on your outline. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. He calls out her sin of adultery. He confronts her sin. Now you and I have a couple of things different than what Jesus had. First, we don't know everything he did. So he's able to be very, very specific right on the point of her sin. You and I may not know, <laughs> we don't know all he knew. Also, you and I have to, have to live in a world where increasingly, when we speak to people about their sin, they either don't know what we mean or they've got the categories all scrambled up. Romans one talks about an age where a culture arrives at the point where the capacity to identify good and evil is pretty well shot, pretty well blown. You say, Brother Russell, I don't think our culture is there yet. Oh, really? Jesus just called out the sin of living together in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. To talk about that as sin will have the world look at you like you've lost your mind. Well, we're in a long-term committed relationship. Are you married? And by the way, that's a yes or no question in all cases. If you need more than one word to answer the question, are you married? You're about to lie to yourself or somebody else. So living together in a sexual relationship outside of marriage is no longer sin, but woo, do not use a plastic straw. We're through the looking glass in terms of what is sin and what isn't. But we have an ally. Romans 2.15 says, God has written on the heart of mankind his law. And that person who is sinning against a holy God, when God the Holy Spirit lights that up for them with the power of his word, conviction will come. God the Holy Spirit can bring conviction using the law written on their hearts and will do so. So, She begins to feel convicted. God is working on her heart. In addition to confronting her sin, Jesus then has to respond to her distraction and deflection. I've had this happen to me in a couple of witnessing encounters. You're kind of coming down to a moment and the, person's, the person is beginning to feel that, that they are a sinner who needs forgiveness and the pressure of that conviction, you can sometimes just tell it's palpable in the room and the person will say, how did Noah get those animals on the ark? Just come at you sideways with the weirdest question. <laughs> Look at what happens here. The man you're living with now is, is not your husband. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Can we talk about the geography of Mount Gerizim for a moment? Because he talking about my sexual sin is kind of uncomfortable. So I'd love to talk to you about the difference between Mount Zion and Mount Gerizim for a moment, if I could. where did Cain and Abel get their wives? Do you think the walls of Jericho really fell over? Now, it's a good thing, child of God, for you to have coherent answers to those questions, but notice what Jesus did. He did not dismiss her question, he just folded it up and tucked it away. Ma'am, I'll deal with your distraction and deflection. Our, um, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place you ought, you ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The geography thing is just not going to matter as much as you think it does. You got to deal with that lovingly, generally, or generously, respectfully, but get the conversation back on track. And then he also confronted her for ignorance. Now, I don't mean ignorance there as a term of insult. There's a universe of things I'm ignorant about. It mean, ignorance means you don't know. Where I grew up, there's a different word. It's spelled I G N U R N T. That is an insult, as in, boy's just ignorant. It's a two syllable word. Again, I G N U R N T. Ignorant. That's an insult. Ignorant simply means this is something you don't understand. Perhaps something you don't understand as well as you think you do. And this woman is is, um, very ignorant of some things that, that matter a lot. Jesus, as she wants to talk about Mount Gerizim versus Mount Zion, Jesus says, you know what? You worship what you do not know but we worship what we know. Salvation has its roots in Judaism. Salvation is from the Jews. Ma'am, what do you think you know about a God you may have manufactured that makes you comfortable? There's a God who is, and he's not the God of the Samaritans in their illegitimate temple on Mount Gerizim, but the God who has sent a savior through the Jewish people, but a savior for the world. So, letter four, our Roman number four, I I must confirm. There's some important truths that have to be confirmed. First, I must confirm the message of salvation. The hour is coming and is now here. Verse 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That spirit and truth there speaks of understanding the gospel truthfully, but not stopping there. Spirit there is not the Holy Spirit. Spirit there is the human spirit. That I must submit my spirit to his lordship, to his leadership. It's not enough to merely assent to the truth. It is spirit and truth. I have to come to him submitted, repenting, turning to Jesus. The the work of the Father is to seek such people. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus, in another of those I am declarations that are found throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I, who speak to you, am he. In the original language, it says, speaking, I am. You and I don't get to make that statement, but we can say he's right here. His name is Jesus and he's right here. And he is the means by his death on the cross, by his substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, that we can be made right with God. We who have no right to claim right standing before God can have it as a gift if we will turn from our sin and trust Jesus by faith. If you're here this morning and you've not done that, I was so blessed after the eight o'clock service this morning to sit with a man who's now a brother. Uh, Right down front. He just said, I've, I've heard it, I've heard it, I've heard it. I need to follow Jesus. And a friend had brought him down front and we sat and prayed together and he came to faith in Christ this morning and I'm blessed by that. And if you will turn from your, he went home, best I can tell, he went home today, a child of God with eternal life and if you will follow Jesus, you can too. There's no good reason you shouldn't. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, but you're not. You're not embracing your assignment as a witness. And as ambassadors go, you're demonstrating that you want to come home and do something else. And that's not a death threat. But I know ineffective ambassadors, one solution for the ineffective ambassador is to end the assignment. One day I plan to go to heaven. I don't want to go one day early. And I certainly don't want to go early because I abandoned my assignment here. I don't mean what I do to earn a living. I mean what I do as a way of life. An ambassador of Christ. You are one too. Let's be effective at it.